This is Katie and welcome to episode 17 of Veteran Entrepreneur Talks. In this episode, we chat with Abe Kmark, a Navy veteran and the founder and CEO of TrueMade Foods. TrueMade makes delicious, low-sugar condiments that you can find in places like Whole Foods and HEB. They're on a mission to cut the refined and artificial sweeteners out of your diet and replace them with veggies. We talk about the lessons he's learned about fundraising, growth, and marketing in the first five years of his business, how he turned a family pain point into a business opportunity, and a pretty amazing journey that takes him from the Navy to Qatar to a plastics factory in Bulgaria and ultimately to launching his own business. For show notes and a list of resources mentioned in this podcast, head over to veteranownedcollective.com backslash podcast. Let's get started. Joining me today from Alexandria, Virginia is Abe Kmark. Uh, Abe is a Navy veteran. He's the founder and CEO of True Made Foods. Abe, welcome to Veteran Entrepreneur Talks. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to our conversation. Um, you and I have known each other for a couple of years, but I'm looking forward to hearing more about your background and how this business came, came to be. And I'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about True Made Foods. Tell us about your company. All right. Thanks. Uh, True Made Foods, we're a health food company uh, trying to turn junk food into superfood. Uh, we started with condiments. We focus on ketchup, barbecue sauce, and sriracha, where we take out the sugar and we naturally sweeten our products with veggies. So we put real veggies and fruit in every single product, replacing the sugar, naturally sweetening it, and turning these once empty calorie sugar-laden foods into uh, nutrient-dense paleo superfoods um, that taste amazing. Um, all of our stuff is, all of our ketchup is kid tested and approved. Um, I got four kids and I always say I wouldn't sell the ketchup if my five-year-old didn't eat it because that's the ultimate test of anything. Um, and we have a partnership with the legendary pitmaster Ed Mitchell, who's also an army vet, probably one of the most famous uh, pitmasters ever to come out of North Carolina or the South in general. And uh, he is uh, he wouldn't be putting his name and face to all of our barbecue sauces if they weren't the best things on the shelf. Sounds like a strong vote of confidence from him and also from your, your five-year-old. <laughs> um, excited to dig in a little bit more to, to True Made Foods and how you got where you are today. But I, I do want to ask if you can tell us a little bit more about your background. Like, where did you grow up? How did you end up in the Navy? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the D.C. area, born in D.C. Um, we moved to Brooklyn when I was Brooklyn, New York, when I was 10 years old. And then we moved back to the D.C. area when I was 16. So I finished high school in Maryland, uh, public schools in Maryland. And then uh, got my ROTC scholarship and went to Vanderbilt University on my Navy ROTC scholarship. Um, I was uh, in Brooklyn. I started to get interested in the Navy because um, I got into sports and um, started getting I back then. Um, my parents never put me in everything. So I, I always had to do, I was very much kind of like a, a latchkey kid in every sense of the word. Um, and uh, so I found my, but they were always very supportive. If I said I wanted to do something, they would get me into stuff and help me with that, those things. But uh, there was never any push for me to do anything. So like I found my own way into sports, you know, kind of late and uh, into working out like when I was like 14, 15. And, uh, Back then, there was no internet, of course, so I started buying um, muscle and fitness magazines in the Brooklyn bodegas to like learn about working out and training. And they started having articles about military training and stuff like that, and like what the Navy does, what the Army does, and that kind of stuff. And that got me interested in joining the military. And so then I just focused on the military from then out. And uh, I thought I wanted to go to the academy for a while, and I actually got into the Naval Academy, um, got accepted. And uh, I ended up turning it down when I got my ROTC scholarship and got to Vanderbilt um, because by the time I was 18, I was immature enough to think that I was much more focused on going to a school with lots of girls. And <laughs> the irony is that, you know, seven years, eight years later, I ended up marrying a Naval Academy graduate. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so my wife was a 2000 grad, I was a 99. Vanderbilt ROTC grad. So, um, yeah. And what did you do in the Navy? Um, I was a helicopter pilot. I flew uh, Seahawks, uh, Lamps, uh, the Bravo version, which okay. is now a Romeo. They've replaced it. So that's, that's how you know you're really old is uh, <laughs> when your aircraft isn't around anymore and the ships that you deployed on aren't you know commissioned anymore. 
that's starting to happen to me too. And they're taking some jobs away and are introducing new jobs. And you're like, was I ever actually in the military? Did that happen? I, I don't know. Um, how, People I served with are retiring. Like really, I, I know, yeah. right? Yeah, that's another one. How, yeah. how did um, how did the Navy compare to your expectations? Like real life Navy. Uh, so yeah, it's always the Navy was always like this weird experience because um, so like one of the things that really helped me get ready and actually probably which put me over over the edge, helping me get into the academy um, and into uh, getting my ROTC scholarship was the fact that I did this one thing called uh, Sea Cadets, which is kind of like almost like a boy scouts. It's very nautical focused and they, um, but it's much more intense and they make you like wear real, you wear real enlisted uniforms like every other weekend or something like that. And you do these events and then summers you do training, like you go to a real boot camp. It's two weeks. I don't call it a real boot camp, but you do boot camp at great lakes. So we did uh, a two week boot camp at great lakes with kids between the ages of like 13 and 17 years old, um, doing this. But like, at the end of the day, like, you know, I took it really, I took everything really seriously when I first started it. And then you start to, you know, I think everybody in the, every veteran probably will go through this where you go through this like disillusionment period where like you start to realize that the people at the top don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> and like, you know, you end up doing a lot of the Mickey Mouse stuff and you're like, okay. But back then I was like, okay, when we get to the real Navy, it'll be better. So I was like, when I get to my ROTC unit, it'll be better. And then, so like, you know, you get to the ROTC unit and you're so gung ho and then, you start to realize that a lot of this stuff is pretty Mickey Mouse and there's kind of like they're making you do things for no reason and a lot of her, the hurry up and wait stuff. And uh, so then you're like, well, when we get, when I get commissioned, we get in the real Navy, that'll be the real thing. <laughs> and yeah, it did get better, but like you are always kind of like hitting those strides where you're like, you get to, all right, it'll be better when I get to a real command or, or it'll be better when I, you know, after I graduate flight school and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah. So there's always like that, um, that, uh, they built up expectations and a little bit of disillusionment. And after a while, I think I think that helps us in a way. Like we all build up a little bit of a a callus and mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a bit of cynicism, healthy cynicism, like getting into things after a while. Um, you worry about the people who are in the military for a while and who don't have that. So yeah, I mean, I what you just described actually like parallels real life as well. Like, I mean, you know, when I graduate college, when I get a job, when I move to New York City, when I get married. You know, it's never it's never exactly what you picture and what you imagine. Doesn't mean it's a can't, still can't be valuable. But yeah, that, that's a very honest, authentic answer, which I think a lot of people can identify with. Uh, and yeah, it's like we both did like top notch MBA programs too, and like you know, it's so excited, and you think like, oh my god, this is like you know, we're gonna conquer the world. And then you realize, you know, it's it's great. It was I'm very valuable. I'm glad I did it. But you know, it was you know, it's not. You weren't with everybody in the room was not geniuses and you know we weren't we were not geniuses for graduating from there and things like that. So one of the one of my takeaways in life is that like you get to this point in life where you realize that no one really knows what they're doing, right? There's a lot more <laughs> pomp and circumstance and that it helps in a lot of occasions, especially when you feel insecure and you're not sure what you're doing. You just think to yourself, like, well, you know, the other guy probably doesn't know either. So we're all in the same playing field. Um <laughs> Okay, so so you mentioned uh, MBA, so I want to follow your path a little bit more. So, what year did you get out of the Navy? So I got out in at literally like January first, two thousand eight. Um, I uh, what I did was so I did my my sea duty in Mayport, Florida, uh, HSL forty two. Um, where I, was, I deployed multiple times. Uh, I spent more time at sea than back at, in the uh, back in Florida, and uh, was deployed for OIF. Um, then came back. And I got lucky. I got had a great skipper at my squadron, and so he got me. I wanted to get an overseas tour, uh, duty tour. Um, my wife, who was my girlfriend and fiance at the time, like she was getting out, and she wanted to go do a grad degree, and she's always wanted to go to the London School of Economics. So I asked my skipper if we could get London. Navier was shutting, was moving to Naples that year, which was unfortunate. So I didn't couldn't get Navier, but he was like, "There's this." base my skipper was like there's this base that has three billets for line officers um in at raf molesworth it's called jack molesworth i'm like who's jack molesworth uh that's joint analysis center molesworth it's uh, you know the intel base for u.s european command and i had no idea anything about that so but it was really cool because i had to get a top secret clearance to work there worked in skips um worked on some great stuff got to travel um, cause I did operations at first since they were like, what is this pilot doing here? Um, they, <laughs> I ran operations, I ran deployments and, you know, I sent people to Iraq and Afghanistan and then 
to we had deployments to Bosnia and Kosovo and places in Africa and Turkey. Um, and so, and I got to go to a lot of those places too, to check it out and set up the deployments. So that was great. And then I worked in counterterrorism for a year and a half too. And so that was really interesting. I'm glad I got to see that. But the, uh, while I was there, because I was, we were living in Cambridge, about an hour north of London. And, uh, I, since my wife was doing a degree, uh, one of my friends from college, um, he was a slow, uh, surface warfare officer and he was a year ahead of me. And, uh, we played rugby together at Vanderbilt and he was at Navier. He had gotten there you know, earlier and, uh, he was, uh, he had managed to do his MBA at London business school, executive MBA. And, uh, so he was like, you got to do this. This is a great program. It's a, it's a steal. Like you can easily do it while you're working. So he convinced me to apply. I got in. Um, I started my executive MBA program. So I actually got to do the executive MBA program while I was still in the military. And then, you know, got out. Uh, of course, the bad thing was like when you're doing an executive MBA program, it's really hard to transition into a new career because it doesn't give you a lot of time to work you know, finding a new job, things like that, especially when you're commuting from somewhere else. Um, and you can't take advantage. A lot of the, uh, you know, the stuff that's set up for the full-time MBA, all the career stuff that's set up for the full-time people is during the day, like 12 right. o'clock on a Tuesday and, you yeah. know, I'm working. Right. So, um, I'm working and I'm like an hour and away, an hour away by train. So, so it was really, it was difficult. Um, and I think, you know, the military, I did not transition well, well, in this building. Um, one, because I just, I didn't have a plan. Um, I kind of was a little bit overconfident that things would just work out. Part of that was seeing the economic boom that was happening, like in 2005, 2006. And seeing my buddy, he got out and got a job at McKinsey right away. And like he graduated in 20, 2005 uh, from his executive MBA, got out right away got the job at McKinsey um, and was doing fantastic. Um, but then I graduated in 2007, um, couldn't get out until the end of 2007. You know, by then that was not a great time to get out of the military. And oh. I did not have a backup plan. Um, I mean, I probably easily could have used my security clearance to get a civilian job at the base at the Jack. A lot of people did that. That's what most people did who transitioned out. Um, I could have joined the reserves there too. But I would have had to join as an intel officer and just something about that like prevented me <laughs> from doing it. Um, and I was just so sick and tired. I, actually, after working at strategic command and working at US European command, that was really what made me just drove me to get out because I love being a pilot. I love the opera. I think the military, we do tactical and operational stuff really well. Um, when you get up to the strategic side, at least during the Iraq war stuff, it was a mess. Um, and I was just fed up and wanted to get out. So it was not a great financial decision, um, especially because we had paid for my wife's grad degree and my grad, grad degree out of pocket for most time. And we had some student loans. Um, plus we had just had our first son and then we got pregnant with the second one, um, you know, back to back, they're 18 months apart. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a terrible situation. We got out and we just closed on an apartment in London. We, we didn't buy it. We, we closed the, the lease. We leased an apartment in London thinking, oh, we'd get jobs in London. No problem. Right. Because we'd seen everybody else for the past few years get jobs in London. No problem. And uh, so it was rough. We, we ended up living in London, trying to doing some consulting and odd jobs to get by for like nine months, uh, living off of last of our savings, too. And then, you know, finally, I had to. Uh, yeah, finally, we like called it quits, especially when we were getting near where to where my second son was uh, being ready to be born. So my wife, my parents were living in Massachusetts at the time. So my wife moved back in, moved in with them um, for the summer. And um, I finished up in London and I uh, started looking for jobs overseas um, in emerging markets because that's where, you know, I just built up a lot of experience. It seemed to be the only thing that was happening during the financial crisis. So. I was actually looking, I almost took a job with the treasury department on Iraq. Um, and That's then, yeah. And, uh, the, and then I had another offer to go take over a company, a plastics factory in Bulgaria and try to turn it around the plastics factory, some hedge fund uh, idiot. I can say that now because I <laughs> had to work for him, but he had bought this plastics factory moved it from Greece to Bulgaria thinking he was going to make so much money on, you know, the uh, lower cost of labor, which on paper makes sense. But 
you can't you can't just like set up a company and expect it to run itself. And it like um, so it was a disaster. It was losing money left and right, and he was desperate for somebody to go in there and turn it around. So um, he offered me this great jo- this job. And coming right out of the MBA, I thought this was the most exciting thing. I was not excited to go work for the government in Iraq, um, just because I thought it was going to be a boring job, even being in Iraq. And my wife, ironically, wanted me to go to Iraq because she understands stable, steady income like really well. <laughs> and she was like, "This is a guaranteed paycheck. We will not see you very much, but for a year, but like it's a guaranteed paycheck." And, yeah, and a significant one too. It was pretty big. Um, and uh, I was like, "No, we'll make more money in the Bulgaria thing. There's a higher upside, you know, if I flip the company and things like that." And uh, um. So I ended up going to Bulgaria. My wife still hates me for this, but um, <laughs> so like the uh, so she was back home with my parents. So right after my second son was born, like two weeks, so it was like going on deployment. I moved to Bulgaria. I lived in like a ten dollar a night hotel room in this tiny town called Kostanets, which is like seventy kilometers outside of Sofia, and I um, ran, tried to run this plastics factory and turn it around and turn it into a profitable um, entity. Um, Just to be clear, what experience did you have with plastics? Oh, zero, complete, absolutely <laughs> okay. nothing, zero. And and with Bulgaria, zero too. I've been to Bosnia, the Kosovo, Czech Republic, Poland, and stuff like that. But like, yeah, I was taking, I was taking online classes to learn the language. I did dictionary. Um, there were three people. There was like fifty employees in the company, and like three of them spoke English, and only one of them really spoke English well. Um, so the office manager Desi, she spoke English really well, and like she was great. If it wasn't for, I mean, she probably could have run the company herself. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it was a mess. Um, but we turned around the company, we got it profitable. Um, we started money coming in, but the, but then the hedge fund guy was also losing his shirt like in his hedge fund. And so he started taking money out of the company. So whenever we made a profit, he would take it back and be like, Oh, but the company owes me money because I put money into it before. And I think being a newbie, you know, no business experience right out of the uh, MBA, like all the signs were there that this was a ridiculous thing and I should not have. But I just kept staying on. And like, I think this is probably a negative thing from being in the military is like you just, you know, in the civilian world, especially when you're doing with new businesses and things like this, you need to just be able to say, call it quits and just walk away. And, you know, and sometimes that's the easier thing. Like you realize you can't control the situation in the military. You, you don't do that because you can't. Right. And we get this, it helps a lot because with entrepreneurship, it builds up that grit um, where we'll, we'll deal with anything and go through anything to get something done. But there are times really when you should just walk away, like, and not deal with these types of people. So what got you to finally walk away from that? What's that? What got you to finally walk away from that? Um, um, I hadn't been paid in two months. Um, they hadn't reimbursed my plane tickets back and forth to the U S when I had gone back to see my family. And, um, what happened was I, the company was going into receivership because we couldn't, uh, we couldn't pay the bills, which at the time, you know, was very scary because it's not like the U S where it's a very straightforward bankruptcy prospect, like the local government takes everything over. And for what everybody had been telling me there is like, you know, once the local, the Bulgarian government is corrupt and anybody takes it over, like everything's just going to get sold, stolen or sold off, you know? And, uh, so you're, it's pretty much done. But then, um, I found a, well, actually our sales guy found this Danish company, um, which was a perfect fit in the same, uh, market industry. And they, uh, we brought them in cause they were really interested. They were excellent operators. They did a great job. Um, but of course they were working in a very high cost uh, location being in Denmark. Um, so they were really interested in potentially expanding into Bulgaria. Um, Bulgaria just joined the EU too. So it was this great advantage of like having these really low cost operations. And they, uh, so they came down and visited. They, we had a bunch of phone calls. We talked through what would need to be done, but then they ended up talking to the owner and about, and they said, listen, like the company needs, you know, this much X million in investment. We're not going to, you know, pay you for it. We'll pay you over time to buy you out over time as the company becomes profitable. And uh, the owner was this like uh, hedge fund cowboy American guy who was like, you know, typical, like right out of a Wall Street movie. <laughs> and he was, uh, he insulted the guy continually on the phone call 
took the phone call at a meeting with other friends so that he could sound like a big shot and like kept telling him, oh, you, you know, it's worth, you know, $3 million. If you don't give me $3 million, you know, right now this deal's off. You can walk away. And I'm not sure. And so we tanked the deal and everybody got fired. You know, the company went into receivership. The dude didn't get any, the owner didn't get anything out of this, like um, other than the money he stole, which was still a net loss for him in the long run. Um, so he blew it all over ego, but you know, the, the employees were screwed. I was screwed. Um, everybody was screwed up and down. Um, and it was, yeah, so it was pretty awful. So that was a, it was a fantastic learning experience and all things. Cause like, you know, the operations, uh, being able to immediately apply everything you learned in business school and realizing kind of what was kind of like BS theory and what really applies and what's really important was great. Cause like I was deep into spreadsheets, deep into operations, a lot of HR stuff dealing with like hiring and firing people, finding good people, you know, negotiating contracts, negotiating debt, um, these types of things. Uh, it was your know, excellent experience for me. And, you know, and then it was a great learning experience having to deal with that guy. Um, but it was uh, not great financially for us. Um, and so, but, you know, we bounced back. Things came back, back around. Um, yeah. And so from there, we went to, uh, you know, I moved back to the U.S. My wife got a job with Rand, uh, the think tank um, down in, uh, DC. So we lived in Alexandria briefly for like nine months. Um, and then while we were there, the I started my own business as a, like a consulting business uh, based on emerging markets and innovation. Because that's all I knew really at the time. And uh, I won a couple of contracts in Ghana and Egypt. And uh, my wife got the opportunity to move to the Doha office. A brand had a Doha office. And, and we were like, you know, we're not getting paid very much here. DC is expensive with kids. So let's go. So, and my, my work was like my, the first, first contract I won was in Egypt. So I was like, let's just go there. Um, and so we moved to Doha and we lived there for three years. My daughter was born there. And so that was a great experience too. Um, and I tried to start, and that was like my first kind of real foray into entrepreneurship. Cause I tried to start businesses in, uh, Doha, because you move into these emerging markets and you get super excited by like the opportunity. When you're an American, you come into these places and you're like, you know what they need? They don't have websites for delivery of food. You know, they don't have this, they don't have that. And so you start like trying to think about like creating these things. Now there's like natural barriers. There's, you know, once you start digging into it, there's real reasons why these things don't exist or why it's not easy to run businesses. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got to learn a lot of that. Um, there's something I think you really don't know a place or a culture until you try to like do business there until you like, especially starting a business. Like it's like a whole new experience, but I had a local cuttery partner, a cuttery, uh, uh, a female. She was amazing. Um, lady, the women in Qatar are like 10 times smarter than the men and like so ambitious things like that. Yeah. So it was causing like a major problem actually socially in the country because like the women couldn't find men to marry because they're like, they're getting like advanced degrees and the guys are like, you know, barely graduating from college yeah. and going into, yeah, getting yeah. some bureaucratic job and like sitting on their butts all the time. And yeah, so it was, so it was just crazy. It was, it was in a very interesting place and we're glad we went there, but we were also glad to leave too. So, um, yeah, so we had some startups there. I still have, there's a website. If you Google Doha delivery, um, you'll find a website that's kind of like a seamless web for Doha. It's still up. That was something we built, um, and, uh, made no money. But, uh, you know, it's fun. But learned stuff, I'm sure. I learned a ton. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but we did make, didn't end up making money consulting there. Um, so, you know, I worked on a lot of really cool projects. Most of them never got implemented. But, you know, that's kind of, if you ever work in the Gulf or the Middle East, that's what happens. There's mm -hmm. lots of PowerPoints and almost no implementation whatsoever. So, you know. Right here. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Lots of great ideas. They like big ideas. Nobody likes actually doing it. Um, so, so we built that up a lot. And I got to travel a lot. I worked in Egypt. I got to work in Jordan. Um, worked with people in Lebanon. So I got to go to Beirut multiple times. Um, you know, and then we got to travel. You know, obviously, it's all over the Gulf. We're in Bahrain and in and Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Saudi is the only country I never got to travel to. Uh, and Kuwait. I didn't get to Kuwait. Uh, but yeah, so we that was really interesting. And then 2013, we decided to come back. We moved back to the DC area um, for my wife's job, and um, I was hired by a local charity to be their director of innovation and help them launch products. 
um, that came from, they wanted to launch products from post-conflict areas uh, to be like a socially conscious products. First thing we did was a coffee. So I worked for a year on launching this coffee called Coexist Coffee. Came from Uganda, from a uh, cooperative of Jewish, Muslim, and Christian farmers. And uh, that was a lot of fun, you know, getting paid to start, getting paid a full salary with benefits to start companies was awesome, you know, to start products. Um, and, you know, got to travel to Uganda and do a lot of fun working with the cooperative there um, and getting into coffee and learning the food business. And that's what kind of got me into the food business. And uh, after about a year and a few months of doing this and launching the coffee and the first little bit of success we got with the coffee, the charity actually ended up running out of money. Um, and so I got let go. And, you know, at that point, I was just so tired of kind of like working on things that never really got implemented that I was like, you know, I have to do something on my own now for my own sanity. Um, and so that's where I decided to start True Made Foods. And uh, about like, so we launched in like 2015, thinking I knew I knew what I was doing and I didn't. Um, so <laughs> there was about two years of learning there. And then we really finally started to grow and take off. So how did you get, I understand like, you know, the director of education position got you into the food space, but how did you land on the products that you launched with and that you had today? How'd you land on the focus area? It was random. So uh, I had a co-founder initially who we had to kick out of the company because he didn't do anything. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, he actually came up with, with the ideas of uh, putting veggies in ketchup. And uh, I thought that was brilliant initially. He had tried it before and it failed miserably because um, he didn't know anything about food. His Him and his wife were terrible cooks and they um, like they, their products just tasted awful. And immediately, though, when he told it to me, like just, you know, the fireworks went off because I was like, number one, there's a major problem that I have at home. Like we try to eat very healthy at home. I've always tried to keep sugar out of my household with my kids. And ketchup is like one of these battles that I was continually losing because like I always thought ketchup, I hate ketchup. I thought it was red sugar, which it is. Ketchup has more sugar than ice cream, ounce per ounce. It's one of the worst things in your refrigerator. Barbecue sauce is the typical barbecue sauce is, is worse. It's typically double what a ketchup has. It's like if you look at a barbecue sauce recipe these days, it's typically like take ketchup and add more sugar. And <laughs> so like Sweet Baby Ray's barbecue sauce has more sugar per fluid ounce than a coca-cola or a pepsi you know and then any soda That's it's <laughs> it's the most sugar dense thing you can eat um it's awful for you diabetes in bottle um but so so i hated these things but we we were obviously we cook out all the time we go to barbecue restaurants a lot and we barbecue and we cook and we grill and uh, i couldn't get my kids to stop eating ketchup um and there was no other there were no good alternatives out there um at the time and this was media. I was like a healthy ketchup. That's amazing. And two, um, like I grew up with an Italian mother, Sicilian mother. And so I grew up early, very early as the oldest child learning how to cook, um, and make pasta sauces, like helping out in the kitchen. And uh, my dad was almost never at home. So like I was always in the kitchen helping out. And, uh, so I learned how to cook at a really early age. Um, and again, like my parents kind of like were very hands off. So like I, we had to be very self-sufficient too. So sometimes if you wanted to eat, you need to know how to cook um, in our household. And uh, the so we were constantly, um, so I learned how to cook with pasta sauces. My mom always said that only lazy Italians use sugar. So <laughs> we uh, we always used vegetables to naturally sweeten the sauce, which is the way it was supposed to be because, you know, poor people in Sicily, like, never had sugar. You know, it was expensive. Like, you didn't have access to it. Um, so you uh, use carrots and things like that and to naturally sweeten the sauce. And so for ketchup, I was like, well, if it works for a pasta sauce, why well, won't it work for ketchup? And luckily it, it did. And, uh, you know, the, the first one we launched, like we basically just kept cutting the sugar and adding more veggies until we got to like what we thought was a good balance. And, you know, for a kind of an MVP to launch as a product. Um, and then, you know, once we raised a little bit of money, I, I hired a consultant, a food scientist, because um, the stuff they know is takes it to a whole new level. And, you know, I worked with her talking about through the ideas because she could translate you know what you do in the kitchen into like what actually works in a product um because it's really not the same you get there's there's a big major step in between that um so she worked with what i did in the kitchen to and turned into a real product and we eventually 
our, our hero product right now, other than the barbecue sauces as a group, is the no sugar ketchup that we have. That's amazing. And that we add, it's tomato, apple, butternut squash, carrots, spinach, and then vinegar and spices. And, uh, and it tastes just like ketchup. And it's incredible. It's one of the healthiest things you can eat, right? It's like, was, it's like a smoothie. And that was your first product, the ketchup? The ketchup, well, the ketchup, we had a low sugar ketchup initially, which we still have out. Um, that was the first thing that was kind of like the MVP. We just, I figured initially if we got to, when we, when we got to a ketchup that was half the sugar of a regular ketchup, I was like, okay, this is good enough. We can launch with this and then we'll keep working to get to a no sugar. Um, Cause I didn't know if that was possible. And luckily actually our no sugar ketchup tastes even better than our low sugar. So it's incredible. Um, so I'm really excited about it. And um, it's that's the one that's really has more distribution now and is really doing really well. Okay. Um, so we're really well, excited uh, about that product. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about the launch. Like you, you get this MVP, you raise a little bit of money. Like who's your first customer and what was that? What was that like? So what we did and we got lucky because you really can't do this anymore in food um, is we uh, we applied to. Uh, I applied us. I, I I quickly did a Google search for accelerators because I thought, okay, we need some help taking this idea forward, and I need some type of proof of concept. If I'm going to dedicate my time to this and not look for a job or not look work on something that will bring in money faster, like I need to make sure that you know this is the right thing to do. And so, um, I I found this one accelerator that was brand new called Foodex, um, and food focused accelerators were just getting started around that in 2015. Um, cause like 2010, 2014, there was like a huge boom in new food products. Like basically in 2010, you could probably like put natural on any, go into any category in the grocery store, do a natural version of what, whatever was con- conventional on that shelf and it would explode. Right. Uh, it didn't even have to be that good. Right. Or that innovative. You just put yeah. natural on it or organic. Branding, marketing, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in 2014 too, it was like everything had to be non-GMO, right? Everybody cared about non-GMO. So if you just put non-GMO on anything, even if it wasn't like a typically GMO product, you know, you're selling more than anything else. Um, um, so then now the money was starting to come in and the excitement was starting to come into the industry. So, you know, and that was one of the things that got me into the industry is seeing this movement and like all this money flowing into it. I think there's a great opportunity and markets changing, et cetera. Um, so I, uh, we applied to this accelerator, Foodex. Um, they're still around. Great accelerator run by SOS Ventures out of uh, San Francisco. Um, Foodex was in New York City. And my dad lived in New York at the time. So I had an apartment to stay in. And uh, I so I would go up. We applied and like last second. And the founders of the, the guys running the accelerator wanted to see us right away. So like on a Sunday, I drove up to New York to meet with them. And uh interviewed with them and got in and we started in a week. Um, and that was great because they gave us $50,000, you know, uh, seed money, helped us set up the company, helped us, you know, get started. Um, they forced, they didn't know a lot about food at the time, which is good because they wouldn't have let us in if they didn't, because all we had was this concept and nothing real. And, uh, they, uh, but they, so they weren't a lot of help with like really like formulating or like getting the, the product out there. But it gave me, it forced me to work on it around the clock. And it um, also forced me to pitch the idea. They, they, they focused more on pitching. So like we had to pitch the idea in front, of, in front of a panel like every week. And so that forced me to like with all the feedback, constantly change the business model and the assumptions and talking to people constantly about like what, what is real and what's not. Um, and so the other thing we did is we, we launched, and I wouldn't recommend for new companies to do this, but we launched at the Fancy Food Show. We, and again, I think this is because it was 2015 and things were like really hot and just starting to get innovative. Um, now, you know, there's so much innovation, innovation in the food scene that, you know, that's uh, it's hard to get discovered at these shows now. Um, but we and they're very expensive. So we, we a lot of the money from the accelerator went into going and launching at the fancy food show. We walked in there having never sold a bottle and we walked out with like ten thousand dollars in POs and um, and a ton of interest. And, and the thing that really got me was like. I thought we'd be selling to like small mom and pop shops and health food stores and things like that. But we had like big grocery stores, like spending a lot of time talking to us at the booths and like, you know, Walmart and HEB and all these other ones were like super interested in the product. I mean, we didn't close those deals at that time. Thank God. Um, but the, but it showed the interest, like the fact that the interest was there and they weren't just like walking by your booth, um, you know, trying to ignore you. 
was important um, for me. So that convinced me that we were onto something hot. Um, I thought, you know, I understood the market. I understood the customer because I am the customer. And, uh, you know, testing it out with friends and family and everything like that really seemed to work. And people seemed to get excited about it. So immediately, I, you know, I just put everything into it right away, you know, and like uh, maxed out a credit card, you know, like went nuts, raised money too early, too fast, for sure, because I got too excited. You know, uh, we didn't really have. Our How do you say that? Why do you say that it was too early and too fast? The second you take somebody else's money um, outside of probably friends and family, you're on a clock. A clock starts ticking, right? Um, because that money is going to run out. And so you have this runway and that's so time, it's a, it's a time plus bank account runway, right? And when that money runs out and you're, when you start raising money again, you need to prove that your company is now worth more than what your valuation that you raised at the last time. So that clock's ticking right there. And if you're still trying to figure things out and still testing things, there's a good chance your, your valuation is not going to increase, right? Over time. So that's going to screw the investors who gave you the money in the first place, which is going to make them not want to give you any more money or other people give you money. It's going to screw your equity, your own equity, things like this, um, because the valuation is not going to go up enough or go down um, worst case scenario. And you need to be very cognizant of that. That clock is going to start. Like if you're going to raise some money and it gives you 18 months or a year of runway, you need to actually make sure that your valuation really goes up. Um, now in tech and in other kind of more uh, innovative areas where R and D is more important and just proving a product is more might be more important, then you know you can you can probably make that you know with just R and D progress or just like testing on customers over time and refining the product over time can increase your valuation. But in food, that doesn't work. Like it's all your valuation is only based on your sales, right? and penetration. So like food or consumer goods in general, really, you need to have sales. And so if you're not ready to really start selling and scaling the company, like don't raise money uh, in food. Um, there's not that. Um, and part of the reason I like started raising money early is because the FoodX was founded initially. I mean, they're much smarter now about this because it's like five years later, but they initially were founded by like, they were coming from the tech space. It was a lot of tech money moving into food because they saw the movement, you know, this opportunity in food. And so they're bringing that tech mentality into food where you could raise, you could be, you know, uh, a couple hundred, you could do be have $10 million in valuation and have zero sales, you know, and no real product. Right. And uh, yeah. And the, the fact is most of the food investors like don't see it that way. Like you know, they, they are very much focused on, Proof product has to be proved on shelf in retailers or at least Amazon sales, you know, some type of sales, some type of trailing 12 month sales that prove that, you know, customers like the product and they continue buying it. Um, so that, so that if they give you more money, you use it to get more sales. That's all they care about. Right. right. Yeah. They want to see that trend line going up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so you walk out of this, this fancy food show uh, right after you had kind of finished this accelerator. So that you walked out with some POs, like who were those customers? And I know that you are now selling in, you know, major chains like Whole Foods, for example. Like, how did you go from those initial couple of POs to where you are now? And like, who were your first customers, significant customers? Yeah, I mean, the other mistake we made is try to go too big too fast early on. And the, honestly, the, the company probably should have folded. Like, we were lucky. I'm lucky we survived. Um, we we brought in um, so. We, it's weird because if when you're first getting in started into it, it really you need to start very local very regional and like kind of build it out from there a lot of the there's there were used to be different playbooks for launching a food company like you know it used to be you know go to whole foods walk in everybody's heard the story from like honest tea or like tesame's here in baltimore like they walked in they didn't even have a product you know they had an idea maybe they like they just brought in the stuff in a bag and yeah. like the whole foods manager was like oh this is great let's go but that worked in like 2009 2010 you know that doesn't work it didn't work in 2015 and it definitely doesn't work now don't even try that now <laughs> so you know you could get started that way get one whole food store and then you get five whole food stores and then you get the region and then you go national now, once you're national, you have national distribution and you get all the other natural stores and then you jump to conventional. And that used to be the playbook. And, you know, with, when Whole Foods 
switched even before they were bought by Amazon. They were because they were struggling as everybody else moved into their space, you know, and Kroger and Safeway now and Walmart sell more organic food than Whole Foods does. Yeah, they, um, the uh, Whole Foods was struggling. And so they started to bring in guys from Target and things like that. And that really, they started centralized, centralized buying. So centralizing decision-making in Austin and giving the stores less, you know, and the managers and stores less and the regions less capability to do that. And so that, that uh, channel was losing. And so um, even though I was based in DC, I kind of launched in New York because I thought New York had a lot more other stores like independent retailers, high-end kind of better for, better for you, kind of trying to be innovative retailers in New York that we could like, that you could have a conversation with the manager and, and get the product in in a day kind of thing. Um, and so we, I did that first, like just driving around New York. Um, so a lot of times, like I would, I would take, we had, we bought a new minivan and I took our old minivan um, up to New York and I would stay at my dad's place. And like during the two hours that you had to move your car from one side of the street to the other, you know, for street cleaning, like I would go drive to Brooklyn and drop off product, you know, things like that at different places and deliver product everywhere. And then the days I was back in DC, I would do the same thing here in DC. I would drive the minivan around in DC and go drop off product at like Yes Organic Market and like the Glens Garden Market and stuff like that. So it started these smaller regional stores. Um, and that's the way you should start and start it out. And uh, nowadays too, I also would recommend anybody starting to really just get started on Amazon because it's just an, it's an easier test platform. Even if your product, like our products are never going to be, we're never going to be an e-commerce only platform because we have a, a low cost, we're a low cost heavy category, which is just terrible for shipping. Coffee is a fantastic category for like ground coffee, beans, anything like that. That's great for Amazon because you're, you're lightweight, you're high cost, uh, um, you know, your people are used to spending a premium for it. So they're not turned off by the high prices on Amazon and it doesn't break, doesn't go bad. So, but even if you have a difficult product to ship, you should start off on Amazon just because of the testing, the testing you can do with it. And it's just a lot, a lot more forgiving if you launch a bad product or if you don't know your market really well. It's just a much more forgiving market to get something wrong. The and you can learn a lot like about what turns it on. Now you have to advertise. You have to have an advertising budget because Amazon is not a discovery platform. Right. Nobody, you know, think yeah. about it. Like nobody's going to accidentally find your product on Amazon. Um, so you need to advertise to try to pop up. But that advertising can teach you about like what keywords are actually the most important. And then you can think about putting those keywords on your labels. We didn't do that early on. Part of it was because at the time, Amazon, we were all glass bottles and Amazon wouldn't even let you ship glass bottles at all and let you be a food product. Amazon is also really hard to get a food product on at the time. They're, uh, they're very hesitant to putting food products on. Um, and then what happened was like, we ended up getting a lot of interest from like big companies like HEB and Lowe's Foods in North Carolina and we launched some of these just a little bit too fast too early where we hadn't really tested the product out in enough stores, um, hadn't really tested the product. You know, had, the product was good. <clears throat> we knew the product was good because when we demoed it or we you know, did an event, people loved the product. But there's a big difference between that and somebody walking through a category on a shelf when they're in a hurry and they're grocery shopping and actually picking up your product and buying. So the we didn't invest enough in packaging and in design and really understanding that what we need to put on the front of the package to stand out in these categories and get people to pay, you know, a premium because you're always going to be more expensive when you first launch for your product. And so that was a huge mistake. And we ended up like failing at some of these early stores. Um, but now, yeah, we, we've been through four different designs, um, product designs, um, iterations. And I think we really have good packaging now. And, you know, the category has been changing in our favor, but more and more people are looking for no sugar products. So it's continually like moved in our favor and we've continually kind of tweaked packaging. I think now we finally have like some excellent packaging that's really done well and it's allowed us to launch nationally. Yeah. You, you really, unfortunately, like I also like just didn't have the patience because I was like, all right, I want to do this. I'm done, like ready to make this a success. And, uh, you really, you got to just be patient early on and, uh, you know, overnight successes sometimes take 10 years. So that's a good one liner. Yeah. Patience and, uh, the ability to reflect and kind of adjust as you're going along instead of just barreling down a path that you think is the right one. Right. And it, se it seems like 
you have you have learned all of these lessons and I think it's it's easy to tell someone else oh you should do this or you know this is what I've learned but sometimes you kind of just have to experience it for yourself right it's hard yeah, especially because like I mean I know people were telling me these things too and I was like no yeah I got this <laughs> like and like yeah, my baby's not ugly. Like, uh, <laughs> your baby's ugly. It's different. Yeah, I'll figure it out. Um, yeah, so lots of lots of um, tough lessons learned, and I'm sure if you start another food business, like it'll go seamlessly and smoothly. But were there um, were there points in in the business over the last five years where you almost broke? Like, what were those points, and how did you how did you get around that? Oh, definitely. Um, well, one like kicking my co-founder out after like 12 months dealing with that, and like the fact that we had to buy him out always best equity. I knew that going in and we just rushed to set things up. So don't rush through any legal processes and things like that. Really take the time and spend the money to get it right. Cause like we try, I tried to save, you know, $5,000 by like rushing the, the company set up and that ended up, you know, costing me who knows, like hundreds of thousands of dollars, really or the company, hundreds of thousands of dollars really by uh, dealing with it. Cause a bad co-founder is worse than a bad product. Like they will destroy your company. And yeah, that was a that was a nightmare. Um, that almost put me under. Um, I think that luckily that happened early on enough in the company where I still had like you know you have this initial momentum where you're just like driving, and so I was able to just drive through that. You know, and then there were, there were just times where you know the sales just were not hitting what we were expecting right early on because the, the bottles just weren't clicking on shelf, and like you launch something getting excited. And you think that this new store is going to be it and it's going to bring in this new revenue stream and it just doesn't. And, uh, and then you're worried that you're going to get kicked out and all this investment you made in launching this new store isn't going to come back and you get desperate and you start trying desperate things. You know, so there were definitely some times out there when I was, uh, you know, just way too, uh, you know, really getting worn down with this. But uh, yet quitting never really totally became a reality for me i think um i was prepping myself for it to potentially end and uh but uh i think i'm just too stupid to quit and i think that's always what got me in trouble before with other business things it was like i just keep you know i get excited about a project and i just keep doing it and i'm just too dumb to stop doing it well you know the people that are successful look back and they point at that as one of the reasons why they were successful so i think it could go either way right <laughs> Yeah, we're not as successful yet. We're getting hopefully soon, but yeah, it's getting um, better. There's light, so there's light. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, that's like something else you mentioned about the military service, like you know, not being able to quit, and then in the civilian world, knowing that you might need to quit sometimes, and knowing when that is. I don't. I certainly like based on you know your distribution and and the growth that you've had over the last several years. I don't think that you're at that point yet. I don't believe that you think that you're there yet either. Um, <laughs> I, I'd be curious to know, like, if you have. Um, uh, pieces of advice for other people who are considering entrepreneurship, like veterans, as you know, the transition uh, programs are not that great. They don't really talk about business ownership and entrepreneurship as a path. But I think that there's so many parallels between military service and entrepreneurship that make us a great fit. So like what, what pieces of advice would you have for someone else that's considering following in your shoes? Uh, number one, I mean, the things that hurt me early on was like, I think you don't ask for help enough, like, you know, really ask for help a lot. It's like that. Try to find a mentor, um, you know, try to find a rabbi to help you out, like try to, you know, help um, walk you through it. The, uh, the other piece I would say is uh, take advantage of the, there is actually a lot of more better programs now these days. I've seen there's like an, there's a whole internship program where you can go like intern with a company or with a startup um, and get paid like you're getting paid your salary. The other thing is like if you retire out of the military, you have an enormous advantage that almost nobody else in the, in the civilian populace does. And that's number one, you have a source of income coming in. I know it's a lot of the times it's not enough to live off of, but to have that is an amazing advantage of everybody else. And you probably have health care too, because you probably have like VA benefits. And um, those two things are a massive advantage over anybody else starting a company. The other thing is um, build your network as quick as possible. The, the number negative, the biggest negative thing that veterans have getting into entrepreneurship is lack, complete lack of network, right? And most successful startups, the, the story behind the story, like, you know, the stuff that you read about or you hear in interviews is always like the kind of 
the soft stuff, but like the real story behind the story is the fact that like a lot of people who are really successful have an amazing network already built in. Like, you know, they either from their Ivy league school or from, you know, their family is in the same business. Like, uh, and I'm not taking away from any of these entrepreneurs or companies because they built amazing companies. Um, and I'm totally amazed by them. they they did a great job, but like sweet green, you know, the amazing, uh, salad restaurant, they've, entrepreneurs have done a great job, but, two of the three founders came from big restaurant families. Like, you know, no. so yeah, it helps a lot. And you're like 22, your average 22 year old, I was thinking if I was 22, there's no way I could start a restaurant. Right. But if you have that knowledge, you know, baked in, in your family, I mean, and you're listening to them and they can advise you on this, it makes a huge difference and direct you to the right money, and the right direct capital it makes a huge difference. Um, same, um, RX bar, amazing success. RX bar is an amazing success. They did a fantastic job. Probably one of the best, most successful companies, Food companies in the past couple of years. Again, the family was in the food business. They were in manufacturing and distribution already. You know, so there was a huge amount of like in, baked in knowledge and uh, connections there that really helped. Um, we don't have that being in the military. That's one of the things we don't have. And especially like if you're a minority, you know, in the military, it's probably even harder, right? So like, or you don't know, come from the right family and things like this. So, you know. Try to use, um, that's one of the reasons I did the accelerator too, is because like I didn't have an investment network. You know, I've been living overseas for years. Um, I had, you know, no thing. Doing the accelerator helped start to build that connection out in those networks out that got me to people who could help the business. Um, wasn't immediate, it happened over time. Um, sometimes it can happen faster, but like, you know, look for these types of programs, things like that, that can help you build these networks in the industry that you want to work in or, or that you want to start your business in. Yeah, and I think that important point about what you just said is that you went out there and built it yourself. Maybe you didn't come out with it, but you joined a program and you I mean, you went to school as well. And like, there's things that you can do if someone's listening and they think, I, I don't have that network. How can I get it? Well, no one's going to do it for you. So get out there and, and figure out how to make that happen. You make one connection, two connections, and all those people have other connections, right? And it just, you know, has a multiplier effect. Just be patient. It's going to happen. Like you just got to, if you just keep finding a way at it. I mean, like Jerry Seinfeld said, like he, he just writes every day, like he wrote every day. Right. And, you know, he didn't write gold every day, but he just wrote every single day. And so you just kind of, you got to do something for this every single day to keep moving it forward. And, you know, and eventually these things start coming together and happening. Um, if you just kind of stay at it, you know, steadily, um, kind of build your hand, build your house on stone. Right. That's it. So consistency and dedication. Um, well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You've had quite a path. I think there's definitely some themes in there that maybe you didn't realize when you were going through it, you know, like yeah. getting in these crazy situations, figuring it out, continuing to move forward. And, you know, a lot of folks I talk to the path, it's not, it's not linear, right? You don't know exactly like where you're going to end up. I'm sure that you probably didn't think you would be owning a condiment business when you. Not even <laughs> close. Yeah. Not even close. Here you are. So um, if, if folks want to get a hold of you to, to continue the conversation, what's the best way to reach you? I, you reach out on LinkedIn. I'm the only Abraham K. Mark in the entire world. So, you know, very unique, u- unique name. Um, so reach out on LinkedIn or if you, if the settings don't let you on LinkedIn, um, if you go through the contact us page on our website, that goes right to my email. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Abe. I can't wait to see what happens with your business over the next couple of years. I'm sure there's a lot of exciting stuff to come. Same, Katie. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the help. That's our show for today. For show notes and a list of resources mentioned in this podcast, head over to veteranowncollective.com backslash podcast. Join us next week for a conversation with Dean Wagner, an Army veteran and the founder of Authentically American. And if you're a veteran business owner or a supporter of veteran business owners, make sure to check us out at veteranowncollective.com.